Hi, Micah. Good to have you on the show. Good to see you, Hardy. How are you? <laughs> Great. And you? Good. Thank you. <laughs> so uh, for everybody who doesn't know you, could you please tell us a bit about yourself, Micah? Sure. My name is Michael Scott Moore, and I'm a journalist and a novelist. And um, while I was uh, on um, a reporting trip to Somalia in 2012 um, to work on a book about a trial of 10 Somali pirates, I was um, kidnapped by pirates and held hostage for about two and a half years. Mm. So um, before we talk about that and your books and so on and so forth, Could you maybe uh, tell us a bit about like how you grew up and why you studied German literature? So, sure, yeah, no, I'm um, I'm a native Californian, but I was raised um, by my German mother, and um, I also have German citizenship. So at some point, I um, I moved to Germany um, on mm. my German passport. I had studied German lit in college. Um, I don't know, just to force myself to read. Um, German novels. I was reading plenty of stuff in English, um, but I got I got tired of the biology that I was studying. Um, I, I went to a good school for biology, but um, once I took all the major classes, I didn't want to do all the minor classes, and so I switched my <laughs> major. Um, and I, it was actually not bad. It was a good program um, at UC San Diego. It's not known for literature at all, but the, the man in charge um, mm. of the department there was uh, Reinhard Letta, who who's a brilliant German novelist. He's he's not particularly well known um, even in Germany, but um, he was he was but he's he's gone now. But he's absolutely brilliant, and um, uh, he ran an, an excellent small program there. So so basically, um, you had a pretty normal childhood, and you studied literature, German literature, because um, your your mother is German. Yeah. Yeah, because just to learn learn something about my my own background. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So so what did you do after you were studying? So um, I moved to Boston and co-founded a magazine. Uh, so I, I went right into journalism um, almost right away, and um, we we had a small magazine that didn't last very long. Um, and after that, I became a freelance writer and a, a theater critic, as a matter of fact. Mm. And, and why did you start that? Um, any particular reasons behind it? Or did you just love writing and journalism? And yeah. Uh, all of the above. But uh, a friend of mine from high school um, who I was living with in, in Boston, he um, was absolutely set on starting this magazine. And I, I was actually happy to help him. Um, we we co-founded it. I mean, there were four of us. Um, and it was an enormous amount of fun. Hmm. So, so tell us about your um, journalism and 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 free freelance writing. So, what are you uh, like writing about? What are the topics and so on and so forth? So, yeah, uh, the, the topics, especially now, um, tend tend to be around immigration. Um, even mm. when I first moved to to Berlin, I I got a Fulbright um, fellowship, and the the topic there, even in around 2006, was um, immigration to Germany from mostly from Muslim countries um, and um, that was already on everybody's radar even even then of course it became a big deal in 2015 but um, you know people have been coming across the Mediterranean uh, for years so yeah and, so, and so of course it wasn't just that migration but any anyway the um, that that was a topic almost as soon as I moved to, to Germany 
So, so just immigration um, in Germany or like worldwide or? No, now that I'm living in, in California, it's interesting um, what's happening across the border too. Right now I'm working on a novel, but it has some, some of that worked into it too. But, um, you, you know, of course there are patterns when you talk about uh, human smuggling and human trafficking. Um, there, there are patterns um, between the, the Mediterranean and the Southern American border. Mm. So, so Michael, I think like everybody um, or, or all of our listeners would love to hear like, um, give us like your most in interesting story for you, like personally about like smuggling, human trafficking and so on and so forth. Um, yeah, like. The most interesting story? Yeah. Well, the, the most interesting thing that I think most people don't um, immediately think about is, is that there's an overlap between um, the sort of kidnappers that I, I was held by in Somalia and the sort of human traffickers that we think of um, when people have to want to move from southern parts of um, Africa up to Libya and then up to Europe. So the guys who held me um, hostage, who were pirates, um, had for, for their tools of the trade um, SUVs, Kalashnikovs, and a connection for cheap food. And um, uh, human traffickers need nothing else, you know. And I eventually wrote an article about how some former Somali pirates were involved in human trafficking through Africa after I got out of Somalia uh, for Business Week um, because I learned that actually one um, pirate who had some glancing relationship to my case probably also was a major financier for Somalis moving across East Africa up to, up to Libya. Um, the overlap between those two business models is not very, um, is not a stretch. It's an easy overlap. Um, it, you still need a criminal gang. And in fact, the Somalis who were taking that path from Somalia through Sudan up to Libya um, would actually get held hostage at Sudan by these guys. You know, it was the same business model. They would just get on the phone to their families and say, I'm sorry, but Ismail needs, you know, another several thousand dollars to, if, if you want him to, to see Libya and, and Europe. And the family would panic and eventually they would pay something. So, so could you please speak to that? Because I think that the topic is like so, so, so interesting. Like, what do you think, Michael, is the mindset behind those guys? Like, are those just like cold heart killers and psychopaths or... Like, what is the mindset of those guys? Or are they like a few normal people who just want to make money? Like, um, yeah, could you please speak to that? I think the psychology part is like so, so fascinating to a lot of people. I, I think the, the answer is that they're, um, they're, they're normal people, but they're undereducated and they don't have jobs. They can't find jobs mm. in Somalia. Uh, what's not true is that they're fishermen. You know, we think uh, the, the immediate thing that people say about Somali pirates is, oh, they're frustrated fishermen. Um, that's true to, a, to it's true about the roots of Somali piracy. Somali piracy started because um, fishermen were getting um, moved out of their own territorial waters by illegal boats. Um, but most of the pirates I met were not fishermen. And um, mm. the, once pirate, piracy became a big deal off Somalia, it was very serious organized crime. And um, in both cases... Uh, human smuggling or kidnapping, um, the the people running it are organized criminals, and mm. so they're nothing else. They're they're um, of course some of them are, 
you know, cold-hearted and some of them are less cold-hearted. Um, some of them are just in it for the money and some of them really want to rise in the ranks and become powerful mm. criminals. Um, but it's not just something that you fall into if you're a frustrated fisherman. Um, you have to be gathered into this criminal gang and you have yeah. to be sworn to secrecy because they're very worried about um, spies. Uh, so there's a very clear division between inside and outside the gang. Mm. So so um, could you please speak to that? So basically they are like organized criminals and the myth about like they're frustrated like a fisherman is complete bullshit, right? Yeah, it's not complete bullshit because um, there would be no pirates if there if the if the fishermen off Somalia weren't getting um, moved out of uh, some of their fishing areas by um, big international uh, fishing ships that shouldn't be there. Um, yeah. we, the, the way it started was these little small boats of armed Somalis would go out and insist that these international ships, which were fishing illegally, should pay them something. They should pay them a little license mm -hmm. fee. And that made sense. It's just, you know, Somalia had collapsed it had no no government so it had no navy it couldn't protect its its shoreline so people were coming in to fish for free um but mm. that notion of defending the coastline is something the pirates maintained even after they started to capture um cargo ships which is when we learned about them at about 2005 2006 um and certainly after they captured someone like me you know They were still using that as an excuse, although they were obviously not defending their coastline by capturing a journalist. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that, that's a great example. So, could you, Michael, Michael, I know you have shared your story like so, so many times, but I think um, a lot of my listeners haven't heard your story mm -hmm. um, so far. So, um, could you like please share the story with us, like behind your kidnapping, like? Um, yeah, share, share with us a story, why you went to Somalia in the first place, and yeah, please speak to that. Yeah, of course. I, I went to Somalia um, after covering a trial of 10 pirates in Germany. Um, I was working for Spiegel Online at the time in Berlin, cool. and this um, uh, trial of 10 Somali pirates in Hamburg was historic. I mean, it was the first time there were pirates in front of a German court uh, uh, in uh, about four centuries. So... Um, it was a big deal, and it was fascinating to me. I've, I had been covering Somali pirate stories just from the newsroom uh, without going out into the field um, for a couple of years by that point, a few years. Um, and then I had done a research trip in Africa. And um, when the trial came, um, I knew that I was, I was going to go to Somalia if I could make it work. And I found a a partner who I'd met in Africa, another journalist who worked for German TV, an Indian guy. Um, and he had lots of experience, not just in Somalia, but in other war zones. And uh, we agreed on a trip together. So we planned it for a long time. We did not just go. How long did you plan it like? Uh, for months, you know. We, oh. we, found, we found an elder in Berlin who had taken a, a journalist through the same region of Somalia, um, a Somali elder. Um, and he seemed to know the area and that route that we were going to take from a town in central Somalia out to the coast and back and talk to a pirate and that sort of thing. Mm. That was something that other journalists had done. So it was trodden ground in that sense. Um, journalists don't always admit that, but, um, but that, that was true. <laughs> we knew that these, um, these sort of unofficial tours were happening already. And um, this guy had done it already. He had already brought a German broadcast journalist through the same area. 
So, so he was safely. an experienced guy. Yeah, he was an experienced guy, exactly, and he was an elder in the clan that uh, that dominated in that region. And so, in theory, uh, well, sorry, wife, sorry to interrupt again, but but what was his story like? Like, yeah, because he said he he was like known in the region. Uh, yeah, he was known in the region, uh, but he had lived in Berlin since the seventies. Um, ah. So, in in that sense, he was a little bit a little bit of an outsider too. But he certainly had. Uh, these friendships and relationships with other mm -hmm. elders um, in that region. I, we could see that as soon as we landed, and we knew that before, of course. Oh, okay. Um, so uh, we were in good hands, and in theory, we were also the guests of that clan. Uh, but I, th I think there must have been um, a betrayal within the clan, um, because when when Ashwin, my partner, decided to go. To Mogadishu, we we both took a, a car um, out to the airport, and um, he got on a plane. But af on the way back from the airport, uh, there was actually a truck full of Somali pirates waiting for our car. And um, we think now they were waiting for both of us. They were they were sorry not to see Ashwin, uh, but they stopped our car. They fired their guns in the air, and they. <laughs> So 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 um, that happened. Why you landed on Somalia or, or like? No, we had been in Somalia for about ten days. Mm. Um, we we um, we got some very good research done, and we we even took a trip out to Hobio, which is a pirate town, and we interviewed a pirate and everything. And that was considered to be the the most difficult part of the trip. The most to interview a pirate. Yeah, and to drive out to the coast. Mm. Um. We, we started in a town called Galkayo, which is a fairly large crossroads town in the middle of Somalia. And um, the, the people there are not all pirates. You know, it's a, it's a pirate resupply town. It's known that there are lots of pirates there, but it's a, it's a thriving community sort of independent of pirates, too. We drove out to Hobio, and now that was a pirate town. I mean, the pirates were actually in charge of that town. We went with the official mayor of Hobio, who couldn't live in Hobio because he wasn't a pirate. Um, so... <laughs> Um, the whole situation was a little bit absurd, and um, um, quite, but really good material. And Ashwin and I, um, especially after we got back from Ho uh, from Hobio, we thought things were going quite well because we had finished the dangerous part. We both got, gathered interviewing the pirate, yeah. interviewing the pirate, going out to Hobio, and um, we were sort of winding down the trip. I mean, we we thought that we both gathered enough information for our projects for the trip um, and it was time to go and so uh, Ashwin decided to take a trip to Mogadishu uh, which meant an extra trip to the airport and when we went there we saw him off um, safely we saw him get on the plane and he flew off to Mogadishu and when it was time for me and my and the elder and my other fixers um, and our guard to drive back um, between the airport and the town, um, there was this truck waiting for us mm, on, on this sort of dusty road. And it was, who knows, about a dozen guys with Kalashnikovs, and they saw our car and immediately stopped it, first of all. So the, the, the truck that they had was um, a battle wagon. It, it was something called a technical, which is a flatbed truck uh, with mm. a cannon mounted in the back, normally an anti-aircraft cannon. And they actually aimed that cannon right through our windshield. So they oh. overpowered us. There was no no um, uh, 
um, fighting back for my guard, basically. You know, he didn't fire a shot, frankly. And um, the guys with guns came over to my side of the car and pulled me out. And they beat me with their guns and they um, bundled me into another car that was waiting. And we drove off into the bush. And from then on, I was a hostage. Mm, so so before we talk about that, um, Michael, can, can you tell us the story? Like, um, what was the objective why you went to Somalia in the first place? You, you just wanted to get some good footage. Uh, and, and yeah, could you? Uh, well, the, the, the men from uh, the trial in Hamburg. Uh, five of them were from that town, Galkayo. Yeah. Um, we we also knew that Galkayo was a good place to see um, the um, the effects of pirate ransoms on the Somali economy. So that was that was interesting to me at least too. And um, uh, I was going to write a book that centered on that trial um, that would also be in more broad terms about Somali uh, piracy in general. And piracy in general, the history of piracy. Um, it was a, a Somali piracy had been covered a little bit. There was one book in English, um, but I had a much broader idea um, and a much richer idea, actually. Um, so it was an ambition to write a book. Mm, got it. So could you please continue with your story? So, yeah. Well, what uh, happened then? They, they captured me, and that was. Um, That was the beginning of a long nightmare. I mean, they, they drove me out into the bush. I had, uh, by that point, they beat me with their, with their rifles. So I had a broken wrist. I had a bloody scalp. Um, I, and I was crammed into this SUV uh, by about eight, uh, eight gunmen, eight, eight complete strangers with guns. And um, we drove not on roads. We drove bouncing through the bush um, for about three hours. I mean, that, that car ride on its, on its own was miserable. Um, but that was my transition between being a free man and being a hostage. We wound up in um, a, um, a bush camp somewhere out in the middle of nowhere. Um, and the men actually blindfolded me to walk me there. But once they took off the blindfold, it was clear to me that there were other hostages there. Um, and there were, it was a camp full of other other guards, other pirates, um, people who looked like the men who'd captured me, you know. And, how, how, um, how, many, how many people were captured there and how many pirates were there, like roughly? Um, I would say another dozen, probably about another dozen um, pirates were there. And I learned later that it was two hostages. But all this was... And how many hostages? Like, sorry. Two, two hostages. Two, okay. Two others. Yeah. Um, but I learned that only the next day when they put us all into a car, because um, when I got there, I hadn't, I didn't have my glasses anymore. When they kidnapped me, they broke my glasses, so I couldn't see very well. Um, and when we were arrived at the camp, there was this mattress waiting for me, sort of at the base of the cliff. And um, I, all I could do was sort of look around at this completely unfamiliar scene um without very sharp vision and it it seemed to me that there were other guys with guns guarding other other hostages um but i wasn't sure and um you know i looked around i i didn't know what was going on um and then night fell pretty quickly it was it was late afternoon by the time i got there um 
I had some food and night fell and I slept on that mattress. Uh, and in the morning they actually brought a car around and there were two guys in the back seat of that car. Um, and they put me in next to them and then crammed us in with gunmen and everything like that. You don't go anywhere with Somali pirates without being crammed into the back seat by a gunman. Um, and yeah. these, these other two guys turned out to be um, fishermen from the Seychelles and fairly elderly men. Uh, one of them was 69. His name was Roly Tambara, and he beca became my very good friend. Um, he became my sort of partner as a hostage for the next nine months, um, eight or nine months. And uh, his friend, Mark Songwar, um, was about 60, and um, they had been captured about three months before on the water by Somali pirates. They were fishing not far from the Seychelles, which is 700 miles from Somalia. So uh, even in that sense, the, the pirates were not defending their coastline. Yeah, <laughs> obviously not. So w what was going through your head? Like, I would be like terrified and um, I don't know, like everybody would just think like, oh man, they're going to kill me. So what was yeah. going through your head during those tough times? That was that was a primal fear for the first two weeks or so that, that I was just going to get shot um, because they certainly threatened that. I mean, they acted like they were going to kill you. Um, I knew intellectually that they, they weren't necessarily going to kill me because um, – Pirates just want money. They kept capture hostages um, for ransom, um, and it's a business model. And I knew all that before I got there. Um, but in those first two weeks, I wasn't convinced they weren't going to just shoot me um, because they kept threatening to, you know, the money has to come within three days. We're going to starve you. We're going to shoot you. And then every now and then we would get up in the middle of the night and go somewhere. And when you get woken up in the middle of the night by gunmen in the middle of the bush yeah. or, or in a prison house, you think, well, where are we going? You know, we're going to get shot. Um, slowly, I calmed down about that, but um, that was the obvious primal fear for the first couple of weeks. So, yeah, in the in those first... What were you, sorry, what, what were you doing then uh, in the middle of the night? Like, um, Luckily, I slept well in those first few weeks. It was just so exhausting to, and nerve-wracking to be a hostage during the day that I, I think... In those first few days, I, I slept reasonably well. Um, but I would sleep on a, on a very thin foam mattress, either out in the bush or um, in, a, in a prison house. They kept us in a dirty house, only concrete, no, no furniture or anything like that, um, under a mosquito tent. Um, for four or five days, I think four days, um, when I was first, you know, after we moved from the first bush camp. And then they moved us out into the bush again, and we stayed um, among some trees, as a matter of fact, in kind of a wooded area, which is a little bit rare in Somalia, um, for two or three weeks. I was captured in January, and we, we certainly didn't get back to Hobio, which was the, the town where these pirates were centered, um, until mid, I don't know, mid-February or so. And then we spent a few weeks in some prison houses, And then we went out into the bush again, and that was the sort of sorry, pattern sorry. for a while. So, and so, 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 how did your day look like? Uh, like yeah, you did, you did nothing. You lay flat on your um, your thin foam mattress, and you sweated. I mean, there was nothing to do. Um, if I was with Roly, then we talked. 
uh, Roly was a wonderful guy, and he spoke he spoke English, so um, we we could talk about our families and our lives, and it was fascinating getting to know him. Um, uh, when we didn't talk, we thought. I mean, we we just. I mean, I had nothing at that point. I had no notebook. I had uh, no yoga mat or anything like that. Um, so the day was completely empty. I think within a few days, the uh, some of the guards did give me a radio. Um, so mm. I, I could listen to the BBC news, you know, a couple times a day if I had reception. Why did they do that? Why, why did they do that? Why they gave, gave me a, um, yeah, a radio? Why you... That's a good question. I, uh, partly because they wanted it. So they let me listen mm. to it. And then every now and then a guard would say radio and he would take it. And then they would listen to it at volume, you know. So it was annoying to me uh, in Somalia. <laughs> um, and then they would wear down the batteries and then nobody had a radio. Um, but I would, uh, I mean, the other thing is that I also had a broken wrist, you know, mm. and for the first six weeks, I could do nothing with that, um, with that arm or nothing significant, um, meaning I couldn't even do yoga, although I wanted to, you know, I wanted to exercise a little bit. But um, for those first six weeks, I really sort of lay still. Or sat yeah. still. Yeah, and 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 uh, what were you? Uh, what food did they gave you? Like um, rice and beans, or? Yeah, basically uh, a lot of pasta. As a matter of fact, so in those first mm. few weeks, um, Rolly and I would get uh, if they separated Rolly and Mark and put um, put Mark in a house and took Rolly and me out into the bush often um, and for extended periods of time. And when we were out in the bush. Um, they would bring sacks of pasta. They would bring cooked pasta in plastic bags, like trash bags. Um, and Rolly and I would have to sit there with our forks and, you know, eat the pasta out of the bag. And that was our dinner. Um, that was our lunch and that was our dinner. We had two mm. meals a day. Two meals it, a day, only pasta. Pasta with maybe some cooked onion on top. I mean, very little on top of the pasta. That's it. That was it. There were snacks. There were um, mm. sweet cookies and mango juice and lots of water. Um, so there were snacks, but uh, oh, and canned tuna fish every now and then. Mm. I don't need to eat canned tuna fish ever again in my life. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe that. So, so, so um, yeah, you were talking about the pattern be behind those going back and forth. So could you please speak to that, Michael? Um, the parallel, sorry, the, the, the pattern. pattern. The, yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah. Well, so when we, when we wound up in town, we stayed, um, in what looked like a, a colonial ruin from the time when, um, Italy was in charge of Somalia. So we stayed in this enormous, um, thick walled concrete house, um, that was, had something bombastic about it. And I, it was such a, it was such a simple building, but so pompous with these long stairways and th that, that sort of thing that I, um, um, after talking to some Somalis, we dated it back to the 1930s or 40s, which would have meant Italy under Mussolini. So Italy running Somalia as a, as a colony, Mussolini in mm. charge, the, the, this, what was basically a farmhouse or probably a very simple country um, office, colonial office had been built under Mussolini, so I learned to call it Mussolini's farmhouse in my, in my head. Um, it was a complete ruin. I mean, it was falling apart. It was probably dangerous to be inside because um, 
um, pieces of it were coming off. You know, the stairs were crumbling, mm. and um, there were no doors. Um, every now and now and then, a goat would come in and sort of bleat uh, and walk through the hall. Um, and we had a gunman sort of leaning in the door, um, and we just camped out on the concrete floor, and that was it. Every now and then, a, a bird, a big bird, would come in. And so sorry, just for the. <laughs> so just 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 for the context for everybody listening so um yeah like what was the time frame like uh two months in three yeah months? so this is within the first two or three months um uh we probably wound up in that house for the first time um in yeah in february and um we, between january and april we lived in that house two or three times and this was a house um, on the outskirts of Hobio. So every time we were, we were in this house, we slowly realized we were in Hobio. Um, the pirates didn't want to tell us, but we could tell from their conversation that we were in Hobio. And um, eventually they moved us out of that house and in, into the bush. Um, and I think in the bush, they got really tired of the aerial surveillance because um, almost immediately the the U.S. Navy, I think, was um, after me. You know, they they were flying drones overhead and big surveillance planes looking for us. And um, even in the bush, they could find us. And I think the pirates got really tired of getting chased mm. that way, you know. Yeah. And so in mid-April, um, um, they took us in the middle of the night down to the beach, put us in little skiffs, and took us out. Um, to a big ship that they had hijacked that was anchored about a mile off Hobio. Mm. And um, so from mid-April um, until the fall of 2012, we were held um, on board an industrial fishing boat. And and um, the daily routine was basically uh, also the same, like pasta every now and then can't... <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, no, the food improved. So the, the ship was newly hijacked. <laughs> the ship was newly hijacked and it was outfitted to go out for months. You know, it was actually a tuna vessel um, and it had a, um, a crew of um, 28 guys when we were on board. When we got there, there were 28 okay. other men and all from uh, Southeast Asia or East yeah. Asia. And um, they had been they had been. Um, hostage for maybe three weeks by the time we met them, by the time we got on board, which means their ship was in relatively good condition. Um, mm. Their ship was still stocked with food, and um, they had designated cooks who would go back into the kitchen and bring out a meal also twice a day, maybe mm. three times a day, um, if we were lucky. And um, this was decent food. This was Chinese food. Um, it was oh, Taiwanese okay. A Taiwanese fishing vessel, but um, the, the the food and the culture on board was very Chinese. There were about 10 guys who were from China. And um, the other guys were from Indonesia and Cambodia and the Philippines. And the five men from the Philippines could speak English. So we sort of fell in with them. Uh, but we got to know all the, the entire crew. And um, we got to be friends with, with pretty much all of them. Um, it, Uh, communication was a problem, but otherwise um, we were all partners in suffering, you know. Yeah. Um, and I should say, because it was a tuna vessel, that they had also been captured near the Seychelles. So the, this was a tuna vessel that had not been um, fishing in Somali waters. Um, there are some very dicey fishing vessels that go up and down the African coast, but um, they don't always dip into territorial waters. Um, 
from what I could tell, they had not been um, fishing in, in Somalia's, you know, territorial waters. But um, it, I, as I say in the book, um, the legality of those ships is always um, somewhere on the edge. I, I, mm-hmm. I call the whole chapter the ambiguous Asian fishing boat because the legality of the whole thing was a little bit ambiguous. It did have papers. It wasn't a completely mm-hmm. unofficial ship. Um, but, you know, but, these, yeah. these, these ships are known for overfishing and taking too much tuna. Um, and they, they're tempted to come at least close to Somalia because that whole region um, off the northeastern Af- African coast is still very rich in, in tuna. Um, the, yeah. almost, the rest, almost the whole rest of the world is overfished. Um, uh, but in part because Somali pirates were known to move around in that region. A lot of ships were shy about fishing there, which means that the tuna stocks have um, recovered. You know, it doesn't take very much for a, a fish population to rebound if you give them a rest. And because of the Somali pirates, there there was um, a rebound of, of the tuna population off the coast of Somalia. Where are you feeling um, at this point? Where are you feeling already better, quote unquote, and, and could deal better with the situation, generally speaking? So... Yeah, I, I remember writing in my journal, which got confiscated, um, even before I got on the ship, that I had found what felt like the bottom, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, uh, emotionally um, and everything else. I, uh, For a couple of weeks, I just felt like I was falling. You know, I didn't know where to put hand or foot. I didn't know what my situation was going to be like. But somehow it stabilized um, in at least one of the prison houses. And I... Um, It was miserable having nothing to do, but at least there was a routine of nothing. Um, <laughs> and uh, so I think my mind had stabilized a little bit even before they put me on the boat. And um, when mm. Ro- Roly and I were both placed on the boat. And once we wound up there with 28 other friends, basically, uh, <laughs> life life improved, I have to say. we Because we had company, we had t- better food, and we had an ocean breeze. <laughs> yeah and i think like especially the company part like helps a lot when you're so isolated and so so like terrified with the whole situation and bored out of your mind so i think it was really important yeah that company yeah. was really important because we could sort of block out uh the fact of what was happening to us to a certain extent you know and we, yeah. we got to know We get to know, I got to know about the lives of, of um, people in the Philippines and Cambodia and, and, and Vietnam. All that was fascinating. And, and what happened then? Uh, we stayed on uh, the ship for several months. Um, the ship started to deteriorate. Um, it started to run out of fuel. Um, the only reason the ship worked was that they ran the generator all day and all night. Um, the pirates actually shut off the generator in order to probably in order to scare us, but they said to, uh, to also to save fuel. Um, mm. And I, I think they, they wanted to frighten the crew into complaining to their families about no ransom. And um, then towards the end of the summer, actually in the fall, I think, um, the, the anchor chain on the ship um, actually broke. So the anchor had been a problem here and there. Um, but on one particular day, um, the ship bounced. And, um, 
either on a wave or because all the all the men moved from one side to the other. Um, and the anchor chain broke, and all of a sudden, this enormous ship, something like 50 meters long, was drifting at random in the Indian Ocean. Oh, and, fuck. And we weren't sure that we were, you were scared on around. We were all scared. Yeah. It was an instant crisis on the ship, you know. And the whole, the whole crew, except for a couple of the guys, and obviously Rolly and me, um, had to go and do something about it. They had to get the mo- they they had to get the engine running. They had to bring the ship under control. And while that was happening, a plane that had been visiting the ship um, for most of the summer came and sort of circled um, uh, to see what we were doing. So in other words, the surveillance plane responded within 20 minutes. And all summer long, I had been wondering where the surveillance planes were coming from um, in in Samoa to come and look at me. It was obvious that there were a couple of planes that really were looking for me or looking for us um, from Western surveillance. And um, my question all summer long was, well, where do they fly from? If they fly from a, uh, an aircraft carrier, that's very interesting. Um, if they fly from Kenya or Djibouti, okay, that's a long flight, and um, there's not much I can do um, in terms of trying to escape. When this plane responded within 20 minutes, I thought, okay, well, maybe it's coming from an aircraft carrier. In any case, the, the ship was... What, why, sorry to interrupt, but why is it special when it comes from an, an carrier? Uh, because an aircraft carrier will have other things like helicopters. Ah, okay, yeah, makes sense. Which can rescue a hostage. And yeah, it makes sense, totally. Uh, yeah. If there had been a couple of, the reason I had that idea was that there, there had been a couple of military ho- helicopters circling the ship when we first came on. Um, but within a couple of weeks, they stopped coming. And at some point, that was really frustrating to me because at some point I was I was thinking, well, I don't want to stay on stay here any longer and I can swim too, I'm a surfer. Um, so, uh, the next, heli- basically I told myself the next helicopter that comes, I'm off this ship. I'm going to jump, you know, and no helicopters came. Um, occasionally a plane came and, um, but at, at the, at the point where the ship, had touched, where, yeah. where pirates also on the ship, of yes. course, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, so, um, at the point where the ship had deteriorated and the, and the, anchor chain broke, um, I was, you know, I'd had enough. Um, and uh, that night, I assumed we were all going to be put, put placed on land. Or, um, without an anchor chain, I thought, well, they're going to have to do something. Um, even if they do something temporary, they're probably just going to empty the ship and put us all back on land. And I didn't necessarily want to do that. And I thought, well, this surveillance plane has just visited us within, you know, 20 minutes, um, maybe tonight is my chance. Um, that night, we were actually moving the whole night through. Um, we had no anchor. Um, the ship was on the move from one part of the coast to, to the other. Um, a surveillance plane had responded within 20 minutes. There was no way the American government wasn't watching where that, you know, wasn't watching that ship every minute to see where mm. the hostage went. And um, when we all went to bed, I wound up in my cabin and I was thinking, I mean, my heart was beating and I was thinking really hard about what to do. And I found a ruse to go downstairs. I needed toilet paper, so I said. And I packed a little light for a signal and I thought, now's my chance. And really? while, I was downstairs, while I was downstairs on the, on the deck, 
I took a running leap and jumped off the ship. Crazy story. <laughs> Crazy story. Crazy. What was going through your mind? Like, I would be like, what the fuck? I don't know I what like, I'm doing. I'm so scared. And I was like, yeah. now or never. And I was thinking, okay, now or it, has never. To, yeah. it has to be at night because um, um, if Somalis with Kalashnikovs want to fire at me, it has to be at night so they can't aim. Also, I have to stay under the water. I thought this through. Um, I have to stay under the water. You know, I'd watch dolphins swim. They spend a lot of time. They they spend all their time at the surface, but they spend a lot of time under the surface. You know, just underneath. So I thought, okay, I'm going to swim like a dolphin. I'm going to angle with um, the, with the the swell. So I had noted the angle of the waves, um, and I knew that would get me away from the ship a lot faster. Um, and it was true. I was away from the ship, you know, 100 meters uh, within. Um, couple of minutes because the ship was moving forward too i mean out of range of any guns uh, but nobody fired anything um, and, and was the water cold oh sorry, sorry, sorry. beautifully warm oh, beautifully okay. beautifully warm mm -hmm. and extremely salty so i was more buoyant than i'm used to being um, mm -hmm. i floated much better uh, once i was out there it was great it was the best swim of my life you know? mm -hmm. um, and i also assumed that because the ship was in not very good condition and because um, it didn't have an anchor and everything else. There was no way it was going to turn around to get me. So mm. I would be out there. The Americans would know I was out there. I hoped uh, they would send a, a helicopter before the pirates could get their business together and send a, a skiff, you know, and come looking for me with a flashlight or something like that. So this is what I was a little bit insane. I mean, this was not, yeah. a, you know, a good idea. Um, but it did seem like a possibility, and I, um, um, I was did surprised. you did you told told your other like inmates about that? No, no, I guess okay, no. yeah. I I hinted about it to Roly because uh, he's a very experienced fisherman. Um, I was trying to decide whether to whether to go out with a um, with a life jacket or not, but you can't mm. swim with a life jacket. You can't swim fast with a life jacket. Um, yeah. uh, the, okay, so what went wrong was that the ship, instead of um, um, continuing to move forward for the rest of the night, and instead of turning around, um, it actually stalled, and it started to come back towards me on exactly the same swell, oh. you know, the same waves that I had used uh, away from the ship, they used to come towards me. Fuck. And so eventually, I mean, I could have I could have swum all around and everything and exhausted myself and played tag with the ship, or I could have gotten keelhauled by the ship and, and severely injured because uh, the ship, while it was rolling towards me, I was aware that the ship had barnacles and all sorts of other things on the bottom. The ship was becoming a coral reef. You know, the longer it sat at anchor, the more things started to grow on the bottom. So I knew that the hull of that ship was very sharp, so I didn't want to get rolled over by it. Um, mm. Um, but at some point I came close to the ship. I mean, I paid attention. There was no sign of a helicopter. Uh, so at some point I, um, I actually gave up and they, uh, the crew had gathered on the, uh, all the hostages had gathered on the deck, um, to, uh, to attach a, um, a life preserver to a rope. And they threw that out to me and then working together, they all hauled me up the side of the ship. So I, I got rescued that way. Mm. And um, um, 
So then I was in trouble. I mean, the pirates were pissed off. (laughs) What happened then? Um, They kept me in solitary confinement on the ship for about three weeks. um, And then they brought me on shore. Mm. So so how how did the story continue? Like, I'm so fascinated by it. So, (laughs) yeah. Well, that's, I mean, that's, that's when, when it got to be, I mean, that's when the real, truly terrible part of my captivity started, because from then on, I was in solitary confinement. From then on, I was in a, a lone hostage um, with only a bunch of pirates around me on land. So these were all, these were the worst of all possible conditions, you know. And um, so I, um, um, that was... Um, there were phone calls. I mean, until then, okay, I should say, until then, there had been no movement in the negotiations for my ransom. So the, the, the pirates had demanded $20 million, you know, on the first phone call in January, this by now it was August or September. There had still been no movement towards, um, a lower ransom. And there had been many phone calls, even phone calls from the ship. So I was aware of the process, progress of negotiations. Mm-hmm. And actually, there had been no progress. So um, that, was the other, that was the other calculation in jumping. That, well, if they're sticking to $20 million, which is an absurd demand, um, then I might as well jump because it's not going to screw up negotiations. What happened in the end was once I was on land, negotiations started. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, they started to move very slowly, but they, that's when they started. And... Um, um, that was my life for a long time on land was just sitting around in some stupid prison house, you know, very similar to the one in Hobio, all concrete, um, no furniture, um, heat, flies, terrible food. And you waited around for a phone call, you know. And the phone call eventually happened. Uh, yeah, but they stopped letting me have phone calls for about a year and a half in there. So sometime in early 2013, there was no more contact with my family, and um, uh, the phone calls started again um, in the second half of 2014. And by then, I was skinny, and I was depressed, and I, um, I was prepared. I, I, I was hoping that somebody would just come in and try to rescue me, and I didn't care if, if I got killed in the process. You know, I was in a pretty stark state of mind. And and did they treat you like badly at the time, or did they just um, let you be not, alone? Not well. Uh, no, they they sat in my room to guard me, so I never mm-hmm. was out of the eyes of a of a guard, um, with a couple of exceptions. But um, most of the time, they had me on sort of round the clock watch, and um, I had nobody else to talk to except pirates. I got to know some pirates. Um, but the treatment was, you know, the treat, I, we were treated like cattle, basically. That's what I, that's the best way to describe it. Um, there was no systematic torture. I did see torture um, and I was beaten occasionally, but none of it was systematic. Um, they just treated you like something to keep alive so that they can have money later. I mean, they, they certainly didn't go out of their way to feed you well. And, um, you know, the dry pasta and the rice and whatever else was was ex- extremely depressing. Um, and I only had meat at this point once I was on land again, once a week or something. 
So my system really started to collapse. Um, and I think that was evident even to the pirates in 2014. Uh, my immune system had started to collapse. Um, I, you know, they, I w just wasn't getting enough protein. And that was, that makes a really big difference to your system. Um, I, I, of course, saw all the things that were wrong. I had a bad skin infection. Um, I had kind of chronic bronchitis or something, or felt like bronchitis. Um, I had certain things wrong with my brain. And when I finally got out of Somalia, um, a lot of those symptoms, once a, a, a doctor told me that I was missing quite a bit of protein, I was suffering mainly from a protein deficiency, a lot of those problems could be tracked down, tracked back to uh, the protein problem. And how how were you how were you rescued eventually? Eventually, um, uh, a ransom was paid of one point six million dollars. So my mom, who was doing most of the negotiations, by the way, um, my mom started a fund uh, for my freedom, uh, and among family and friends and magazines I'd worked for, uh, and some some other sort of outfits. I had a um, I had a grant from the Pulitzer Center on Crisis Reporting, so that they were involved too. Um, they this this sum of money could be could be cobbled together. Um, but I have to say that my mom and the people who were supporting her, um, there was another negotiator who came in at the very end, um, made the pirates blink. So in other words we had a certain amount of, amount of money on offer and the pirates came down <laughs> um, at the end. And we don't quite know what made them come down. Um, although while I was there at the end of the summer in 2014, it was, it was clear to me that the pirate guards were getting sick of guarding me. And um, one of them even said that they were about to go on strike. So um, he whispered that to me and I said, look, if I can help with a hunger strike or something, you know, I'm I had already been on several hunger strikes. Uh, you know, just let me know. So that was the first moment of um, <laughs> yeah, a, actual alliance between me and the, mm, and the guards okay. because yeah. the guards, they knew they were going to get only so much money at that point. Uh, they had an idea of what the sum was going to be, you know, and uh, they didn't want to work anymore. They didn't want to keep watching me. Um, I was on good terms with some of them at that point, and they were tired of watching mm. me suffer too. So they, um, uh, some of them said, um, okay, or one of them said, Michael, we're, we're telling the boss we're going to stop work in a month or something like that, and we want them to negotiate. And so I think that has something to do with, with why the pirates came down, you know, sort of all of a sudden. And um, in fact, um, I didn't know that negotiations were going well at that point. I, mm. I knew there were more, more phone calls, but I was in such a stark state of mind um, that even on the last day when they said, Michael, you're going free, um, we're going to drive you out to the airport. I was convinced that um, they were just going to hand me off to another Somali gang, that if money had changed hands, that Al-Shabaab had bought me or something like that, you know, a terrorist group, uh, and that I was going to spend another year in captivity. So not until I got driven from the prison house out to the bush and then towards the airport did I seriously believe I was going free on that day. Yeah. So. And and tell us about the feeling when you eventually arrived at the plane. So, well, it was amazing. I mean, uh, I had to be handed off to several to a couple of different pirate uh, 
Somali drivers. The first one probably did have something to do with the pirates. But, you know, step by step, I was no longer with pirates. Um, and the last Somali to drive me to the airport said, well, um, yeah, we're going to meet, you're going to meet a plane um, and um, no one else is at the airport and you're going to go free. Wow. Uh, you know, step by step, I had figured this out. We had even, the first driver had even called my mom um, mm. and the other negotiator. And they told me that, that I was going free. And my mom said that my, my, the sound of my voice really lightened, you know. Um, I don't remember one moment of happiness. I remember slowly realizing that, yes, maybe and probably I was going to go free and that's good. Um, I was not in a much easier state of mind from as far as I remember until that plane took off because mm. um, as, as long as the, um, the pilot who was very experienced, um, the, the pilot was obviously nervous until we took off too. Um, he tried to calm me down and, and act very professional and he did it brilliantly, but um, you know, we were the only plane at the airport in Galkayo in the, in the city where I had started this journey. Um, and there was delay getting permission from the tower. So mm. even those last moments um, uh, on the runway in the, at the airport were a little bit tense. Uh, but once we were in the air, I felt a lot better. And then um, we landed in Mogadishu and another plane landed that happened to be a US, US Air Force plane. Um, and um, I was bundled into that plane uh, with some FBI agents and some German um, Bundesnachrichtendienst agents. Mm. The, um, um, the, sorry, not Nachrichtendienst, but the, um, the the equivalent to the German FBI. Oh, okay, got uh, it. The B BKA, so Bundeskriminal. BKA, ah, okay, yeah. yeah, got it. And... Um, um, these guys had been tracking my case for ages. You know, they knew exactly who I was. I didn't know who they were. And um, mm. they they strapped me into this cargo plane and we took off. They said, there's some sandwiches up in the front if you want. <laughs> and uh, it was an extremely long flight because we had to take a detour. But um, I wound up in Nairobi late that night. Um, and then it really settled into me that I was going to be free. You know, once I was on the ground in Nairobi, I felt this feeling life. must be unbelievable yeah. after this tragedy. Like, I think like nobody who's listening to this can imagine the feeling like me included, like it yeah. must be like so beautiful, right? Really incredible. But like I said, it happened in stages. It happened. It was, there was not one moment. Yeah. I was so guarded by the time I was uh, at the end of that experience that I wasn't allowing myself to feel a whole lot of excitement. You know, I was, I had to sort of slowly unfold. Um, and it was difficult to talk to people too. I mean, I was not used to talking to people in English or German into, you know, in a language that I was fluent in. Um, I, uh, I, I was easily overwhelmed by, by people. Um, so, so it all happened very slowly. Mm -hmm. um, but those first few days in Nairobi uh, were very relaxing, and I, I got to stay in um, the sort of a small hut in, the, in somebody's backyard, um, and it was just so beautiful compared to everything I'd been through. Um, that mm -hmm. it, it, it was the first part of my my recovery. Mm. So, Michael, um, could you please speak to the recovery process of um, 
yeah, when you eventually arrived and so on and so forth. Yeah, um, recovery was also slow. Um, but when I, I talked to maybe four doctors because I had all kinds of things wrong with me. Um, um, but one doctor, my regular doctor in Berlin, told me that I, I had a protein deficiency. I said, well, I would have expected, you know, a lot worse than that. And he said, me too. <laughs> um, uh, but once I knew that, I um, combined yoga and going to the gym with um, protein shakes and just a lot of protein. And that helped physical recovery enormously. I mean, that made um, the physical part of the recovery really quick. Um, when I first got out, I could, I could barely even walk. I mean, I knew I could walk, but I didn't realize I couldn't walk like you normally do in Berlin. Um, I tried to lead a normal day, get my Barmer card, my health insurance card, and everything else. And at the end of that day, I felt like I had just played a game of football and my knees and my ankles had swollen up and I was in so much pain for the next three weeks that I couldn't walk very far. Um, I couldn't run. I didn't realize I couldn't run, but I tried to run for a tram in Berlin and I simply didn't have the musculature for it. I couldn't, I didn't have the stride. I couldn't, I could not run. Um, so th that took about a month. Uh, it took about a month before the swelling went down and I could start thinking about running again. Um, and that was a month of going to the gym, uh, doing yoga, eating well, um, and being a little bit paranoid because mentally I was also not in very good condition. Um, I had all sorts of what would be called symptoms of PTSD. Um, I was easily overwhelmed. I was um, hypervigilant. Um, and those things started to ease too. They started to take care of themselves once the physical part was, um, was mm. getting better. Um, it still took at least a year to, to recover fully. Uh, and in other words, I don't think I was back to full physical strength, um, for until, um, about the fall of 2015, I got, got out in 2014. Um, and mentally, you don't take anything for granted. I mean, I think mentally, I learned I learned to protect protect myself. You know, I learned to shut down in certain ways. Um, but I have to say that the therapist that I was with, the American therapist, um, was really smart because he he did not want to. I actually turned to him. Um, he was there in Nairobi, and I said, "Are you here because I might have PTSD?" He said, "We're not going to put a label on anything." <laughs> he said you don't need to pathologize it you don't need to turn it into another condition that you then have to recover from you know mm. just recover. and that was really good advice um in my case um yeah. i you know he had dealt with he was ex-military and he had dealt with um, a whole lot of combat stress which i was not suffering from uh, combat you know wasn't in a firefight um but i think he recognized that um I didn't need extra drugs. I didn't need extra treatment. Um, I just needed to consciously recover. recover. Yeah. Um, and it, you know, it took a while. I had to be patient with myself. Um, but I think that strategy uh, of not pathologizing it and turning it in to a separate condition in your head um, was really important. Mm. So, so how did the um, 
the whole like Somalia thing and 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 being kidnapped. How 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 is the lasting impact on your life? Like, how does it influences you today, Michael? Well, I think um, that by the time I got out, I didn't expect to to get out at all. I didn't. I figured there was about a 50% chance I was going to see my family and friends again. So the fact that I am out and alive um, is a source of enormous gratitude, and it still is. You know, I, if I ever forget to be grateful from day to day, I, all I have to do is think back about what happened. Yeah. And um, so that's an that's an extreme um, difference. And um, also, I think I just I think I learned to. Um, just live moment to moment while I was in Somalia. Mm. I learned to live with the moment instead of looking forward to the future because as far as I concerned, I was concerned as a hostage, uh, there might be no future. So I was not living, I was sometimes living in the past, but I was not living very much in the future in, the, um, in Somalia, um, which was a good discipline for living in the present now. Mm. And... Um what would you tell like because i think like having this experience like gives you so much like perspective like mm -hmm. like like for me personally nothing nearly as terrible happened to me so yeah. um i think like everybody who's listening to this is like oh my accountant is saying this and that and i have like stress on my job and <laughs> my my girlfriend is like getting uh yeah stressing me out and so on and so forth and we are all dealing with this nonsense issues so yeah, yeah could you please speak to that michael because oh, i think yeah. you have no, so I much mean, perspective there are certainly small things that i don't let uh that that don't bother me anymore that, that i yeah. don't allow to bother me anymore i mean i live in southern california now um and um this is like the home of of um people getting upset about little things. Um, so I just, I try to avoid those people. It's not always very easy, um, but I miss Berlin too. I, I don't know if I'll stay here. I, I like Berlin so much that I, I might move back. Uh, but yeah, no, you meet those people in Berlin too. You just, I don't know, you, you choose your friends, I, I suppose. <laughs> so so michael at the end um i asked every guest like five very quick and short questions but um before i ask those um could you please tell everybody about your upcoming projects and um maybe you could also like at this point in our interview share with us your best quote-unquote life advice because i think um yeah you have gone through you have gone through so 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 tough times And um, I think like everybody would love to hear like your best like life advice. So should you please speak to that? Yes, um, I'm not sure about the advice, but the project I'm working on now is actually a novel I started in Samoyan. So at some point I did have notebooks and I could write and I drafted a novel simply to keep my mind going. And um, mm -hmm. I didn't think I was going to walk out with that draft of a novel, but um, in the end they let me leave with six, six or eight notebooks. And um, I'm now working that novel into something. Um, and th the, uh, the setting is here in Ca California, but the topic is drones. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I had drones on my mind while I was in Somalia. Uh, so I'm, I'm working more on fiction than anything else at the moment. And um, as far as advice goes, I, I don't know. I don't, have, I don't have a line of advice, but I, it, it is... Um, 
what would you tell our listeners? So, well, I mean, what I see with the people around me here is that um, if you don't have a certain command over your emotions um, or your mind, um, you do let these little things get away with you. So, in other words, um, getting wound up about something that may not be so important um, is is a function of um, not paying attention to everything else that's going on. Mm. So in other words, being aware, um, and um, so meditation helps this with me, but um, being more aware of what's going on um, outside your little con concern of the day um, really, really helps bring you perspective. Um, I'm afraid that's not terribly original, but um, it, is, it is something that's worth practicing. Um, and it's something you do have to practice. Got it. So um, could you please also tell everybody where can they connect with you on the social web, buy your books and so on and so forth? Um, sure. The book, the book, the memoir is called The Desert and the Sea. Um, in German, Wir werden nicht töten. And um, uh, I am on Twitter, uh, Michael Scott Moore, but without an OT in the middle. So Michael Moore with SCT. Um I'm also on Instagram, and I do have a website. It's radiofreemike.net. Um, Got it. So. Yeah. So um, the first out of the five question is, Michael, um, what are the three books that had the greatest influence on your life? On my entire life? Um, the Tin Drum by Goethe Grass. I love that novel. Uh, that's one. Um, and... Um, let's see. The Grand Inquisitor by Dostoevsky. So, mm. in that's a that's a section of the Brothers Karamazov, but it's a it's a beautiful short section on its own um, that has um, that um, we didn't even talk about forgiveness, but forgiveness was an incredibly important part of what I went through and. Um, that is sort of the heart of the Grand Inquisitor, too. Um, um, and what else? I can't just do three books, but um, thinking at random. Um, uh, I love Humboldt's Gift by um, um, Saul Bellow. Uh, Saul, Saul Bellow wrote um, a you know, great many novels, but um, only two or three of them were big, exuberant novels. One of them was The Adventures of Augie March, which everybody knows, but Humboldt's Gift is, Humboldt's even, Gift. More, is even more mature and, and exuberant book. Um, I love that book, but I, I have to say I haven't been reading about it lately. Uh, lately, I've been reading, um, um, gosh, what have I been reading? Um, a, a lot of new short stories, and um, I've been rereading the game, the Great Gatsby. Mm, yeah, I love the Great Gatsby. <laughs> yeah. So um, the the second question is, um, what are the three movies that you have enjoyed the most? The three movies. It's also hard to to break down. Um, 
Let, so, I can't narrow it down. <laughs> so obviously from LA, I love Chinatown. Mm, um, yeah, a classic. That's a classic. Um, I just saw the um, uh, Brighton Beach last night, which is based on a Graham, Graham Greene novel. Um, that's not bad. Um, I can't narrow it down. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> a last one? The last one. Uh, okay, Hus Husbands by John Cassavetes. It's a good old <laughs> film that nobody nobody knows knows anymore. Got it. So um, the third question, um, it seems to me to be a little bit silly, silly because we had such a deep conversation, but um, <laughs> what is the most useful product or service that you have bought in recent memory, Michael? Oh, well, I just got a new longboard. So uh, my mm -hmm. new surfboard is my favorite new product, I have to say. <laughs> yeah, I believe that. So um, the fourth question is, um, what are the most important realizations you've had in the last couple of years and we had some guests who shared something like deeply personal about their business health family time travel like speak to anything you feel comfortable sharing with us today well i think it's the more the more i turned it over while i wrote the book about samaya um and the more i've talked about it in the meantime i think that it was really crucial for me to learn to forgive while I was still in captivity. Um, if I had not been able to do that, I probably would have done something drastic, like pick up a, a rifle and try to shoot the pirates. And that um, would have been suicidal. Um, so learning to forgive, even in an extreme situation like that, um, is possibly one, one reason, possibly the most important reason why I survived. Mm. So the last question for today is, um, what would you tell your 20-year-old self? Be less afraid. Mm. Be less afraid. Got it. Michael, thank you so, so much for being on the show and sharing you, your story today. Um, yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> see ya. Okay, see you later.